Following a decisive victory in the Battle of Actium in 31 BC against his rival Mark Antony, Augustus Caesar returned to the city of Rome triumphant and declared himself emperor. Thus the Roman Empire was born, bringing an end to the former Roman Republic, which had existed for some five centuries. As to be expected, an era of expansion followed, with Augustus securing much of Italy and even venturing beyond the Republic's former borders. One by one, neighboring lands and peoples fell to the might and power of the Roman military, which, in light of the formation of the empire, had strengthened considerably. By A.D. 6, Hispania, present-day Spain, had been secured, along with Egypt and North Africa, much of Central Europe, and even Judea, what's now Israel, and Syria in the Middle East. But of the many territories and lands consolidated under Augustus's rule, one remained elusive, that which the Romans called Germania, what we know today as Germany to the north. Ruled by a confederation of Germanic tribes, some of which would often clash with one another, it was wild and untamed land as far as the Romans were concerned, full of what they referred to as barbari, from the Latin meaning beard, a reference to the facial hair that Germanic men would wear, and which gave rise to the word barbarian, and therefore uncivilized. Though they had, in the years leading up to the birth of Christ, extended their borders only slightly into Germania proper, it was the emperor's goal to capture the rest of it, the acquisition of which would extend Rome's influence to the North Sea. Little did they suspect, however, that these Germanic tribes were willing to set aside their differences and defend their ancestral homeland from the threat of Roman invasion. What led up to the fabled battle of Teutoburg Forest? Why did Augustus Caesar wish to conquer Germania, and how did the outcome of this conflict change Rome's imperialistic ambitions forever? I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and welcome to the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. With Augustus Caesar declaring himself the first emperor of the newly established Roman Empire, it wasn't long before the monarch began planning the expansion of this new sovereign state. After all, in the waning days of the former Roman Republic, much of Italy had been consolidated under Roman rule, and, according to Augustus himself, the future prosperity of this new empire was reliant upon the expansion of its borders. He soon launched campaigns into neighboring lands, annexing them one by one and incorporating them into Rome's jurisdiction. Hispania, Egypt, Judea, Syria, they all fell to his military might and power. Setting his sights on the interior of the European continent, he quickly conquered neighboring Gaul, present-day France, in 27 BC, though this was met with a great deal of resistance on the part of its native inhabitants. During the conflict, Gauls, Aquitani, and Celtic tribes were smuggling weapons across the Rhine River from neighboring Germania, what's now Germany. Prior to this insurrection, what the Romans called Magna Germania, Greater Germania, was nothing more than an afterthought for Augustus and those in his inner circle. But as more and more Germanic weapons made their way into the hands of the Gaulish rebels, it became increasingly clearer to the emperor that something had to be done about these meddlesome Germanic tribes. Naturally, invasion was his answer. With the rebellion in Gaul having been quelled by around 20 BC, Augustus turned his attention towards Germania. He began by strengthening military presence along the Rhine, the like of which had only been small up to that point. Several forts were built between 19 BC and 17 BC, though they did nothing to deter the Germanic tribes from attacking. In fact, the few stray Roman soldiers who dared venture east of the Rhine were captured and executed by a combination of members of the Sicambri, Usipetes, and Tencteri tribes, after which the belligerents crossed the river and proceeded to attack a Roman cavalry unit. There, these Germanics also faced the 5th Legion, 
whereupon they captured the regiment's bronze eagle after a swift defeat before retreating back across the Rhine. When news of these attacks reached the emperor back in Rome, he knew he had to do something, and quickly called for increased military presence in Gaul. So began preparations for campaigns past the Rhine and into Germania proper. The first of these took place in 12 BC, when General Nero Claudius Drusus crossed the Rhine to push the Germanic tribes back deep into their territory. The campaign proved to be so successful that he led three more over a two-year period, between 11 BC and 9 BC, the last of which saw the defeat of the Keruski tribe, one of the largest in the region. With its chieftain, Segimerus, the conqueror, having agreed to become a vassal of the Roman Empire, he sent his two sons, Arminius and Flavus, to Rome as tribute, where the former was given a full military education, and was even bestowed with the title of Equestrian, one of the highest and most prestigious Roman military titles. During this time, however, suspicions deepened amongst the various Germanic tribes, as Segimerus's acceptance of Roman control was seen as a cowardly act, one that was punishable by death. The already loose confederation that ruled over Germania soon loosened even further, with trade and political alliances virtually disintegrating as a result. Whether the weakening of the Germanic confederation as a whole had been the Roman's specific aim is anybody's guess, but by AD 4, the empire leapt at the opportunity to extend their dominance over the region. Augustus sent Tiberius, a great general and later emperor, into Germania, where he successfully subjugated three tribes in the northwest and far north, the farthest north, in fact, that the Romans would ever venture in continental Europe, of the country, the Bructeri, the Cati, and the Canonifates. This was followed by yet another campaign two years later. Under the command of generals Gaius Sentius Saturninus and Marcus Aemilius Lepidus, a large army consisting of 65,000 heavy infantry legionnaires, anywhere from 10,000 to 20,000 cavalrymen and archers, along with some 10,000 to 20,000 civilian conscripts, a total of around 100,000 men, was sent to conquer the Macromani, one of the most powerful of the Germanic tribes that had, in fact, established a rival kingdom of sorts north of the Danube River. Their king, Marobodus, had, in fact, spent part of his formative years in Rome, and was therefore familiar with their military tactics and strategies. But right in the middle of the skirmish, an even greater conflict broke out in the Balkans involving the Illyrians, an ancient race of people who had also fallen under Roman rule and were leading revolts against the empire. With almost half of all Roman legions being deployed to Illyricum, leadership of the Germania campaign was turned over to Publius Quintilius Varus, a respected senator and nobleman who was known for his brutal and ruthless tactics against rebels and insurgents. His preferred punishment was crucifixion, which, as we all know, was the same fate that would befall Christ a few decades later, and the number of Germanic dead he left in his wake attests to this. When he assumed command over the three remaining legions in Germania, the 17th, 18th, and 19th legions respectively, Arminius, that self-same Germanic prince who had been sent to Rome as tribute as a child, had become his closest and most trusted advisor. Little did Varus suspect, however, that his confidant was a double agent, working behind the scenes to form an alliance of Germanic tribes that had formerly been enemies to rise up against the ever-increasing threat of Roman control. How did Arminius manage to do this, you might ask? Well, for starters, being of Germanic nobility himself, he was not only familiar with the territory, but also the various tribes that called the land home. He used their collective outrage to his advantage, citing Varus's cruel tactics on any and all opposition, as well as the tyranny of the senator's rule over the Germanic tribes he'd conquered. In essence, it was quite easy as there was no shortage of resentment against the empire in Germania at the time. He began by uniting the most belligerent of tribes first, namely the Brukteri, Kati, Keruski, and Mati, all of whom, at one point or another, had warred with each other. 
encouraging them to set aside their past quarrels, they would maintain this makeshift alliance until the opportunity arose to strike back against the Romans. In this way, Arminius is sometimes seen as the first promoter of a united Germany, the like of which would not be adopted officially until 1871. With the transfer of all but three legions to the Balkans to quell the Illyrian uprising, the now united Germanic tribes seized their chance to strike. While Varus was making his way to his winter headquarters on the banks of the Rhine River, he received word that a local uprising had broken out. This bit of information had, in fact, been concocted by Arminius himself, in order to draw Varus into a well-sprung trap. In reality, a much larger force awaited the arrival of the greatly outnumbered three Roman legions. Varus, unaware of this fact, and not wanting to be deterred, departed in haste for the Roman-controlled portion of Germania, even going as far as to traverse unfamiliar territory at Arminius' suggestion to expedite the journey. It would, however, prove to be a costly mistake on Varus's part, as his Germanic vassal was leading him directly into an ambush. But it wasn't just his unwavering trust in Arminius that would ultimately cost him. It was his hubris, for he had, in fact, been warned the night before of the impending Germanic raid on his men. The person who'd stepped forward was a man named Segestus, a Germanic nobleman of the Keruski tribe and Arminius's own father-in-law, with whom the young prince had an outstanding feud. Varus, however, dismissed the warning, thinking it to be an attempt at getting back at Arminius. Thus Arminius departed from the Roman camp that evening without any problems, claiming, as he told Varus, to gather up Germanic forces sympathetic to the Roman cause. In reality, he was mobilizing the rebels, who would be waiting in the dense overgrowth of Teutoburg Forest for the senator and his legions to pass through. The following morning was described by Roman historians as grey and overcast in the vicinity of what's now Calcrise, at the edge of the forest. Varus led his small army of three legions, six cohorts, a unit comprised of about 480 soldiers, of auxiliary troops and three cavalry squadrons, known as Alli in Latin, through the thick woods. Not only was the terrain rugged, uneven, and unfamiliar to them, but the men were also unskilled in combat, as many of them had only recently joined the military service. To make matters worse, it started to rain, making the forest floor muddy and near impossible to traverse. For reasons that are unknown to us, Varus had neglected to send a reconnaissance party ahead to scout the woods. This was perhaps due to his hubris, which, as stated above, would prove to be his greatest folly. In addition, the soldiers weren't in combat formation, and therefore formed a haphazard line in which they walked every which way, so long as they maintained their course. It was in this sorry state that the Germanic rebels found their prey. At Arminius's signal, they began firing everything they had, spears with narrow blades called fremai and javelins, down upon the Roman troops. Hand-to-hand -hand combat consisted of large lances and light portable swords, which the Germanics used to respectively impale and cut down the enemy forces. Not only were the Romans outnumbered, but Arminius, having been raised in and trained by the Empire, was able to anticipate their every move and tactic, and successfully counter them with his own. By evening, the defeated legions had narrowly escaped with their lives, and those who had survived managed to set up a heavily fortified camp. The next morning they set off even further to the north, pressing on all through the day and night so as to escape the rebels who were hot on their trail. But here at the foot of Calcrisa Hill, Arminius had set another trap. Caught between an almost literal rock and a hard place, the Roman forces were stuck in a gap in the hills between the woods and swampland. This gap was only about 330 feet, 100 meters wide, and much like the Persian forces at Thermopylae, became trapped in this narrow space. Seizing their chance, the Germanics surrounded them, raining hellfire down on them in the form of their spears and javelins. Several officers tried to flee, most of whom were tracked down and killed by the insurgents. Varus himself, following Roman military custom, committed suicide by jumping on the blade of his own sword, so as not to be shamed by taken prisoner or killed at the hands of quote-unquote barbarians. In all, around 15,000 to 20,000 Roman soldiers were 
killed. Tacitus, a contemporary Roman historian, claimed in his accounts of the battle that those officers who had been captured were sacrificed to the Germanic deities, cooked in vast kettles, and had their bones used in rituals. Though this claim should be taken with a grain of salt, no pun intended, as it's quite possible that he was merely attempting to make the Germanics appear even far more savage than the Romans already thought them to be. Still others became slaves to the various tribes of the region. It was one of the biggest and worst Roman defeats in the entire history of the empire, and is in test to the iron will and independent spirit of the Germanic peoples who wished to protect their land from its ever-expanding influence. Though conflict with the Germanic peoples would continue sporadically throughout the duration of the empire's history, namely along the northern borderlands, Rome never dared venture into Germania's heartland ever again. The Battle of Teutoburg Forest single-handedly brought an end to Rome's northern expansion, though they would eventually manage to conquer Britain, the farthest north their sovereignty would ever extend. In the centuries since the battle, Teutoburg Forest has become an archaeological hotbed. To date, some 6,000 Roman military artifacts have been uncovered, while only one Germanic artifact has been uncovered, part of a spur, indicating that the so-called barbarians suffered few losses in comparison to their Roman adversaries. Given Rome's military might and dominance, which was renowned throughout the ancient world, this is quite surprising, but proves that even the greatest of sovereign states is capable of a blunder, in this case a rather large and costly one, from time to time. It also shows the skill and cunning of the Germanic warriors, to say nothing of the prince who, having been raised in Rome, anticipated their enemy's every move. Still, the Battle of Teutoburg Forest is an event that continues to resonate throughout the German-speaking world, and was integral to shaping the modern German national identity. It has been popularized in literature, and most recently television. The Netflix series Barbaren, German for Barbarians, is a dramatized account of the historic event, and is worth watching for its stunning performances and intense battle sequences. Indeed, if those very woods could speak, it goes without saying that they'd have an awful lot to say. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode on one of the few groups of people who managed to keep the Romans at bay. No small feat, I can assure you of that. While I love the entire breadth and scope of history, I'd have to say that ancient history is my favorite, and it's incredible that events that took place so long ago continue to shape our current culture and society. Antiquity will always have a special place in my heart, and I'm glad I get to share it with my listeners. Speaking of which, if you love history as much as I do and, and would like to support continued educational content, please consider supporting this podcast monthly. Just visit anchor.fm slash historylovescompany and click the support button. From there, you'll be redirected to three monthly support plans that fit any monetary situation. Listening and sharing help as well, so please do so wherever you get your podcasts, as it's available on all streaming platforms. Have you ever wondered where some of the best-known songs and jingles come from? Tune in next week to find out, only on the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you next time.